If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. And welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durable. Yay! <laughs> so, so proud of Just you. I'm so proud. He's all grown up. Oh, okay, so look. This is part two of the Q&A part of proceedings. And I, I, I feel like I wanged on quite a lot last time. Would you like no to wang on, Would you ever wang on? on as you said, All right, look, here, here is a question. Let's go straight into it, OK? Um, and this, by the way, this is, we always do this at the end of a, an empire. So we've been covering the Ottoman Empire. And these are some of the questions that you have brilliant people. And we love you so much for doing this, have been sending in. So Lareb Mohib says, would you categorize the Ottoman harem? as more or less progressive than other empires? So I would definitely categorize it as less progressive than either the Safavids or the Mughals, who are the two immediate comparisons to the Ottomans. And here is why. First of all, the Mughals tended to marry women of equal status. So they were Rajput princesses, but also uh, princesses from elsewhere in South Asia, Afghanistan, and beyond. And they tended to have wives who were literate, strong-minded, and well-educated. So you find, for example, Humayun's sister writing a biography of him. You have Shah Jahan's daughter, Jahanara, composing poetry, Aurangzeb's daughter, building a library. And so my impression is that the Mughal harem is a much more well-educated place. And we even have a whole series of Mughal miniatures of the education of women with elderly scholars, uh, mm-hmm. old gentlemen with long beards sitting, teaching circles of young princely women um, how to read and write and, uh, and so on. But there's also a very clear divide between the Ottomans and the Mughals in the financial wealth, the sheer riches owned by Mughal women. And mm. there is an essay I've seen on the building of Shah Jahanabad by Shah Jahan in the 1640s. 
and three quarters of the public buildings in the city are built by women, including Jahanara, who builds the main caravanserai and the second biggest mosque, the Fatipuri Mosque. And, and Jahanara being his daughter, Shah yeah. Jahan's daughter, we should say, yeah. So uh-huh. my impression is that the Ottomans are unusual. I can't think of another major Islamic dynasty that marries slave girls and have, yeah. and have their children from slave girls, which is a yeah. very different thing. To, to having a, a marriage to a, a princess who is, you know, however unequal this relationship is going to be, at least comes from a But it's a diplomatic background. relationship. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's some kind of parity of experience, at least. The, you know, the uh, Bethany Hughes, who, who did one of our episodes, just because um, we were getting a bit carried away with Roxolana. We both liked doing Roxolana very much. You know, she was really interesting and she rose and she rose and she rose through the, the ranks. A beautiful and slave girl. that she's from Ukraine. Possibly U- Ukraine, yeah, yeah, Ukrainian. I was just thinking the same thing. But then Bethany brought us down to earth because you know there are now modern day excavations at Top Capi which are revealing these scribbled notes secret notes like the handmaid's tale Uh like help me I want to go back to my mummy you know that kind of thing so for for every Roxolana you had hundreds and hundreds of women who were dispossessed away from home had nothing had no agency it's very very important to try and get this balance isn't it between Mm. on one hand not judging 18th century or earlier centuries dynasties by modern standards. On the other hand, yeah. not romanticizing these extraordinary stories like Roxolana and forgetting the fact this is based on on slavery, abduction, and, and basically rape. Well, rape, yeah. Can, can I ask you a question? Because I have actually, I've, I've always wondered about this. So I, I've been slightly obsessed of late with a woman called Enheduana. I don't know if you've even sort of come across this, her, but she's no, she's from it's ancient antiquity. So the, the ruler Sargon of Akkad. So he's a Sumerian leader, twenty fourth, twenty third centuries BC. But his daughter is Enheduana, who is the High priestess who does the history of her father's reign, who has oh, interesting. I didn't power know this at all. An no. agency. She's the first writer of, of, a, of a historical document, so some argue. And she writes hymns and she writes poetry. And some people say that Homer, you know, himself was sort of inspired by her, her style of writing. You have this period of time where women did have agency, they did have power. And then you go through whole swathes of time where both in Asia and in Europe, Women have no agency at all. <laughs> you know, they are, if not as, as, as lowly as slave girls kidnapped from their homes, but still, you know, may as well be because they just have nothing to say in their future. What, what, what goes on here? I think there's far more history in the Islamic world than people know about powerful women ruling Islamic dynasties. There is an entire book about the woman rulers of Islam called The Forgotten Queens of Islam by Fatima Marinisi. That was a great feminist classic, I think, written in the 80s. And it deals with all sorts of women, like, for example, Razia Sultana in the, in the Delhi Sultanate yeah, yeah. and so on, of queens who do rule Islamic territories. So again, you know, one's got to get the balance somehow right. And if you compare Razia Sultana with someone who's almost her direct contemporary, which is Matilda, the Queen of England, who is the daughter, if I remember correct, of Henry I. And there is the period called the Anarchy, when Matilda and Stephen. I love the fact that he's called Stephen, by the way. I never get over that. It never gets old for me. Stephen. Matilda and Stephen. Steve. uh, 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 Rule over a fracturing polity. Mm. And Matilda, I think, is a a very similar person to Razi Sultana, who again succeeds initially and then is done in by, by a coalition of men. 
I also just this is reminding me of something else that I was very tickled with in this series I loved, which was the letters that went from the harem in Istanbul to Queen Elizabeth I and exchanging makeup tips. Wasn't that lovely? That was so nice. Wasn't yeah. that just gorgeous? Yeah. Uh, Bethany brought us that. And, and, the, and the way that uh, Roxolana, is it Roxolana or one of the other queens? I think it's one of the other queens. It's, the other it's queens. not Roxolana. Yeah, it's one of the other queens. Yeah. Uh, it says, um, sort of, send it direct to me because she doesn't want yes. anybody else Because these pilfering witches I'm surrounded <laughs> by, they're just going to use it all up. Look, Charlie Harper has a question. Uh, let me put this to you. Maybe you can. Maybe you can deal with this. During the rise of the Ottoman Empire, Protestants and Catholics were at each other's throats in Europe. We've sort of touched on that a little bit. How was the Ottoman Empire so successful at absorbing religions without pushing a particular doctrine? So the Ottoman Empire was solidly Sunni Muslim. There was, in a sense, a state religion. And the one of the driving forces of the Ottomans is a rivalry with the Shia Safavids in Iran. But there is a system, uh, the Millet system, which leaves the religious minorities, the Jews, the Greek Orthodox, the Armenians, all the different religious communities under a self-governing Millet system so that the patriarch of, of the Greek church is ultimately responsible legally for the behavior of the Greeks and the same across the, across the different communities. And that's a system that works pretty well. On one hand, you don't get any equivalent in Ottoman lands to the sort of hanging, drawing and quartering of Jesuits that are going on in Tudor England at the same time, any given day in Tudor London, you could turn up at the Tyburn and see mm. some Catholic priest who'd been pulled out of a priest hole, uh, having his entrails ripped out in the middle of London as late as the 17th century. Uh, nothing like that happened in Ottoman lands. On the other hand, you do get, as, as, as we also know, these moments of terrible interreligious violence, like 1860 Damascus, when the, the Christians are burnt, suddenly burnt out of their quarter. Mm. And the, the great art that you see in the really good writers on the Ottoman Empire is, is people like Eugene Rogan, who, who is a, a, to date our only four times guest, who manages to get that nuance of on one hand expressing this sort of this sort of pluralism and on the other hand, its enormous flaws. Mm. Okay, there's another question. I can't find the name of it. So forgive me if I can't find your name, but it was a question. Are there any uh, descendants of the Ottomans still around today? Now, I know there are because you've been chatting to one on Twitter, on the Twitter. Yes. Well, I had connections with two in, in real non-Twitter life, and I never met either. But So this, the daughter of the last Ottoman caliph, Abdul Majid II, was a woman called Durashava, who was married off to Hyderabad and who was still living there between there and London when I was first writing about Hyderabad in the late 1990s. And there is a Durashava hospital in Hyderabad to this day named after her. Durashava was this fantastically imperious looking woman who had very much the same hawk nose of Mehmet II in that wonderful Bellini, famous Bellini image of the conqueror. And she was a princess in Hyderabad uh, where she died. And she also had a niece who I tried once to interview and then couldn't make it. And I've always regretted it called Nilufa. 
So there was the two Ottoman princesses in Hyderabad. But it turns out there's another one on Twitter. And uh, we've been corresponding with yes. her. And she liked the series. Uh, I hope she I still does. I hope she, uh, yes, I know. I, I noticed you were straight in there with, I'll come around for a coffee. Not going on your own, mate. Just sending you that for <laughs> I didn't free. I reply to that one. <laughs> <laughs> if you're still offering, I'll bring biscuits. I'd quite like to come. That'd be nice. That'd be really fascinating. Good. Look, shall we take a break? Join us after the break when we have more of your questions. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We're doing a Q&A, special Q&A on the Ottoman series that uh, we have brought you over the last, how many weeks? It feels like we've been doing this for quite a long time. <laughs> a while, haven't we? Most of this year. Yes, most of this year. But there's a, you know, there was a very long reign. So, you know, I don't apologize for nothing. Nothing. Uh, here's a question for you, William. This is from Abdul Kalam. Is it true that Sultan Abdul Hamid II gave up Palestinian land to the British Empire? Great podcast, by the way. So the answer is a complicated one. Uh, and the answer is yes and no. Abdul Hamid, I believe, comes to the throne in 1876. And it's in 1882 that the British get their hands in their first attempt at really uh, taking on Egypt as part of the empire. And in 1882, there's this terrible shelling of Alexandria, when Alexandria gets, gets kind of reduced to ruins by a British naval bombardment. Afterwards, you get a period called the Veiled Protectorate, 
when the British are claiming to be protecting Egypt on behalf of the king of Egypt and basically keeping the Ottomans out. And it's a complicated period because it's not a full protectorate. It's not fully part of the British Empire, but in effect, it is a British territory. Mm. So, uh, yes, in, in, in one way, Abdul Hamid does lose yes, Egypt. Ish. Yes, ish, yeah. he does lose Egypt ish. to the British. There are also n- long drawn out negotiations, which we've talked about on this series, both in the Abdul Hamid episode and in the Balfour Declaration episode, between the Zionist movement, between Herzl and Abdul Hamid, about a Jewish Zionist attempt to buy Palestine from the Ottomans. But Abdul Hamid really, I mean, he gives us in short order, he says no. Well, no, he doesn't say no initially. And this is the important point. I mean, ultimately, he doesn't sell it, correct? Yeah. But that he allows the negotiations to draw out. And again, the inference is drawn from this by historians, rightly or wrongly, mm. that Abdul Hamid, like Lloyd George, uh, was a believer in the anti-Semitic idea of a sort of world Jewish power uh, who controls mm. secretly the media and so on. And he believed that if he kept in conversation with the Zionists, the Zionists would be his ally against his increasingly bad image and public opinion in the West following the Bulgar massacres. So right. he, I, I believe these negotiations go on for a prolonged period, 10, 15 years. And in the end, he says, no, I will not sell it. Yeah, he says, I will not sell land that is not mine. Yeah. I mean, he says, it's, it's along those lines. I'm paraphrasing Correct. terribly badly, but I have no right to sell land that you know belongs to another it belongs uh, belongs to the people who yeah, my people who, who conquered it uh, or something. Years, yeah. but it's it, it, he does allow the negotiations to wrangle on and and he wishes mm. to have what he calls international jury on his side so so there's an attempt to woo the jewish people and the zionist movement without actually giving them palestine that's my understanding of it interesting yeah. Oh, look, I've got this such a gorgeous thing to read and you're going to light up. Everybody sit back, turn off your lights. William's going to light up. This okay. is from Janet Power. Dear Anita and William, I attended a wonderful musical performance in Sydney during the week and I thought of your current series on the Ottoman Empire. It was a performance of Vivaldi's Four Seasons rearranged to include the Oud and the Bendir. Uh, the Australian Chamber Orchestra performed with the superbly talented Egyptian-Australian brothers, Joseph, Joseph and Tawadros, James Tawadros, my friend Joseph. I told you, and my <laughs> friend Joseph up. as well now. <laughs> thanks, thanks to you now, my friend as well. But what, what I love, and I think you'll love too, we'll talk about them in a minute because they are fabulous, but um, it was a perform- performance of Vivaldi's Four Seasons rearranged to include the, the Oud, the, the Reek and Bendir. I'm sorry if I'm, oh, Joseph, forgive me if I've done that all wrong. But what, what she says was, it was a mesmerizing performance which thoroughly evoked the closeness of Venice and the East. And that is a very important point, isn't it? The flow of culture that exists between, you know, this sort of wafer thin partition at the time when, Absolutely. you know, Lady, Lady Mary is zipping across and the fashions are zipping across and the face cream and the, and the, and the cloth merchants who leap out of Tudor England who want to do deals with the Ottomans. It is a very thin veil. Let's say, so just can we rave about the Tawadros brothers? So, because, yeah, so two oh, answers amazing. to that one about Venice and the East and one about uh, the Tawadros brothers. So Joseph and James Tawadros are cops brought up in Sydney of obviously Egyptian heritage. How fabulous do they look? And they are fabulous. James plays look them up. Plays the, you know, an Ottoman drum, the, the Bendir, and Joseph plays the Oud. But uh, Joseph is also a great fashionista with a twirly moustache and a kind of Father Christmas beard. 
And I've been lucky enough to have him play many times in my kitchen. You have. I, I think uh, I, I've heard there, him in your yeah. kitchen, but I've also heard him. One of the most magical things was on um, Gwenda Chatter's roof, where right. we, he just kind of came after our Koenor launch, and he was he was sort of in our in our in our orbit, and we went, and it was very gracious of Gwenda to let us have some time on the roof. And gracious of Joseph to play. Well, but Joseph didn't have anything to play on. He he doesn't carry his oud. You know, an oud player doesn't necessarily have one in their pocket. But Gwenda's son was learning. The ukulele right. was one of those lockdown things. <laughs> so there was this detail, busted yeah. up ukulele <laughs> with one string missing, and we make we went play it, play it like a bunch of hooligans. And didn't he make beautiful music? Oh, he does. But you should hear him on his actual lute. He's very particular about his yeah. lute. He has them made in Istanbul still. There's one person he goes to who uses this very traditional uh, techniques. And he's a wonder. I first heard him in the Rajasthan International Folk Festival, the Riff, where mm. he was then part of an Australian ensemble called A Band of Brothers. And there was Joseph and his brother, and there were two other, I think, Hispanic guitar players um, was the original lineup. And they were extraordinary. And we became friends then and friends ever since. And he lives half the year in Sydney and half the year in Shepherd's Bush. Well, he should, he's just, he's, he's, he's awesome. Let me just say he's awesome. Go, go look them up. But They're we should fabulous. talk more seriously about Venice and the Ottomans. And this is something I've written about. There is, I've got an article in an old issue of the New York Review of Books. Everyone's got a subscription for that about the Ottomans in Venice. And it was a review of a spectacular exhibition by a man called Stefano Carboni, who had an exhibition on this subject at the Metropolitan Museum a decade ago. And it has a wonderful catalogue where you can see all the pictures. But the exhibition itself was extraordinary because it talked about this strange symbiosis. On one hand, both the Ottomans and the Venetians relied on each other for their trade and prosperity. And war meant an end to that trade and impoverished both. However, both were after the islands of the Aegean and the mm. Mediterranean that used to be part of the Byzantine Empire and, and Venice and the Ottomans were dividing between them. So we discussed, we had an old episode with Barnaby Rogerson talking about the siege of Cyprus, but there were also sieges of Malta and many other sieges. But what is extraordinary is the artistic interchange between the two, and it goes in both directions. If you look at the Doge's Palace in Venice, it is a Fatimid design. The shapes of the, the little sort of pine cones on the roof, the mm. shape of the mosaics are almost the, oh, I was going to say the tiles. The tiles. Oh, you know, the tiling is just a giveaway as well, isn't it? And the shape mm. of the windows. And the whole yeah. of that Venetian Gothic style is borrowed from... Islamic architecture, the shape mm. of the fondaki, the uh, the factories of the uh, of the foreign merchants, are very much based on caravanserais, and it goes in reverse. And if you go to the Mamluk mosques uh, in Old Cairo, you find floors that look like they're Baroque churches in Venice, with inlaid mm. marble from Italy, with gorgeous designs of Pietra Dura work. And there are extraordinary interchange of artistic ideas backwards and forth. And, and mm. the, so much of early Italian art borrows from Ottoman and pre-Ottoman Arab uh, exemplars. And you see this in Amalfi, in the early uh, Amalfi Cathedral. You see it particularly, obviously, in Sicily, which had been an Arab possession at one point. And you see it all mixing up during the, the Norman rule in the south when kings like Roger II of Sicily are using Arab craftsmen to build their palaces. And Frederick II, Stupor Mundi, gets Arab craftsmen to build these extraordinary octagonal castles 
Oh, I mean, there's, I, I've had many happy days wandering around Sicily and southern Italy going to look at these <laughs> things. And, and in fact, my next book, yeah. The Golden Road, is ending with Frederick II's castles in, uh, in southern Italy. Well, well, what a brilliant question that opened a door onto so, so much. Just, to, just for one second, going back to the wonderful Tardros brothers, you talked about Joseph gets his um, ouds made in a special way. Does he give them names? Like Lizzo has a violin called Sasha. No. Do you know, does he? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Joseph, he just probably wanted. does, but I don't Joseph, know for I, sure. I, 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 I've just got a feeling he's the type. He might. One final, one final little thing that is rather nice is that, of course, the Venetians, having invented Venetian Gothic by mixing North European Gothic with Arab architecture, it is European style of architecture, which is particularly well suited to hot tropical environments. And Ruskin then publishes The Stones of Venice, illustrating many of these buildings. And it's Ruskin's version of Venetian Gothic that then is taken to India and in really? in buildings like the big um is it vt the the uh, the big railway station in in mumbai and in the kind of the architecture of the taj which is, well the taj is sort of half florentine dome i'm talking about yeah. the taj hotel not the not the taj yeah you're not mahal. the taj mahal yeah no good. i i got i was with you yeah 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 but mm. there is a huge transfer of venetian gothic to Mumbai particularly, uh, to the Prince of Wales Museum and to other great Raj buildings in what was then Bombay uh, through the pages of Ruskin. Thank you. I love that. Now, look, I'm going to, this, this next one is just somebody telling us something. So, so just, I, I mean, sit back, yeah. fasten your seatbelt and, and take notes because I think this is really interesting. It's from Vinay, who's very sweet and he's one of our Indian listeners. Welcome. Thank you for a phenomenally interesting series where I keep learning things I'd never have suspected were true. Like there were Indian troops at Gallipoli and the Ottomans impersonated them to fool the Aussies. Can't believe it. So Vinay then has this wonderful etymological connection that he wants to offer us between India and Anatolia. He says, I come from Karnataka in South India. There are two words in Kannada, which is the language of, of the South, that are used generically to describe Muslims and foreigners. One is Turuka, and the other one is Yavana. And I really hadn't thought about it until I heard you guys, but I'm suddenly seeing it in a new light. The former is obviously a corruption of Turk, and the latter is a corruption of Ionian. Isn't that interesting? So I've actually, funny enough, been talking about this this week in a seminar in Oxford, because uh, my next book has a lot about Yavanas in it, and it's the whole question of who the Yavanas were. So on the west coast of India, you've got all these Buddhist caves built from about 100 BC, 150 BC, to about 200 CE. Uh, no, to, beyond that, to, uh, right up until the, the 6th and, uh, century, in fact, Ajanta, the last caves in Ajanta is 6th century. And Many of these contain dedicatory inscriptions by the merchants or the moneylenders or, or, or the people who are actually paying for them, or often just simple pious nuns and, and monks. And there are a considerable number of inscriptions in these Deccani caves which are left by people who describe themselves as Yavanais, or even in one case, a Romanoi. Now, the Romanoi is almost certainly a Roman, but who the Yavanas are is disputed. In some cases, we know from Tamil literature that Yavanas can describe just foreigners, so uh, sort of Scythians or Parthians or any of the sort of warrior folk of uh, who've occupied northern India or what's now Afghanistan, Bactrian Greeks and so on, are just known as Yavanas. And yes, the word comes from Ionian. Uh, and later on, it becomes the word Yunani in Urdu, 
which is also which Ion, means also Ionian, but Ionian, Greek, Ionian, Byzantine. Uh, uh-huh. right. So, you, so you have in northern India, you have Yunani medicine, uh, right, which is right, a pa- right. runs parallel to Ayurvedic medicine. And if Ayurvedic is the, if you like, the, the ancient Hindu uh, medical mm. system, so Yunani medicine is the ancient Galenic medical tradition, which still oh, survives in Pakistan and North oh, India. There's a yeah, whole yeah. university of, of it in, in Tuklakabad, not far from my house. And it's all about the pulse. And a trained Yunani physician can feel your pulse and, and doesn't just count the number of beats per minute that a Western doctor would do to to take your pulse, but they have different kinds of pulses. So there's the rabbit and the stoat and the the leopard and the tiger, all these different names mm. for different kinds of pulses, and they diagnose you from that. Uh, so that's a living tradition. But the Yavanas, it, it used to be thought that they were specifically Greeks who converted to Buddhism or, or wish to dedicate a, a Buddhist cave for whatever reason. But now it's it's generally accepted that it is just a, a word like Farangi today, which can just mean any which sort of foreigner. Which just means foreign, any foreigner. Or Mleka is, is, is the same, but a, yeah. but a less yeah. charming way of saying it. I find I find the language transfer so very interesting. So I mean, it's something else. I'm, I'm working on another documentary at the moment, and I've been spending time with Scottish gypsy travellers. And I am astonished by how many Hindi words that I use are in Romani and they use. I mean, then and they are just the same. The numbers are very, very similar. Ark is eye, Pani is water, yeah. uh, Nark is nose. You know, we were just sitting there hurling words at each other. And I anyway, I just tickled. That's all. I'm just sharing a tickle with you. Right, we've got one more and then I think we're going to have to close this uh, fantastic Q&A session. But you know what? We'll do it again because uh, you like it and we like hearing your questions. And this final question comes from Robert Allen, who says, to what extent did the Ottomans see themselves as the spiritual successors of the Roman Empire? Got a thought? This is a big theme of our wonderful guest, Mark Bayer, in his Ottomans book. He he lays great emphasis on this. And I'm not sure they saw it as a spiritual heir in any religious sense, but they certainly saw themselves as the occupiers of the throne of Rome. And of course, today in the West, when we talk about Rome, we think of it as being Rome in Italy, uh, and that's that. But we forget that the Eastern Rome was Constantinople or Istanbul. And these Seljuk sultans who conquered Anatolia called themselves the sultans of Rum. Jalaluddin Rumi, who originated in Balkh, emigrated to uh, Konya in what is now Turkey and was therefore Mm. Jalaluddin Rumi because he came from Rum, which is Rome. Uh, And so the caliphs regard themselves very much as the sultans of Rum uh, and the caliphs of Rum, by which they meant not Rome in Italy, but Rome in Istanbul. Do you know, I never put Rumi together with the Kings of Rome. That's amazing. It's just Jalaluddin of Rome. Isn't that gorgeous? Look, um, thank you so much for your questions. And uh, it's been an absolute privilege to do this series. Do you mean with me, Anita? Is that what you're getting at? Or what well, no, What do you... I'll tell you what. What, what, do, you th- what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit suspicious. I, know. I mean, you know, you're fine. You're all right. Uh, but it's been a privilege to... <laughs> It's been an absolute honour and a privilege. <laughs> I have a coronary. This carries Just on. Don't die. Oh my God, can you imagine? If you did, if you killed over in an episode, that would be terrible. 
That would be sad. Particularly before I have finished my book, I am racing to the final chapters of my next book, The Golden Road, and I am not allowed to have any sort of coronary before, I, before no. these last two chapters. No, no. We'll keep you alive. How's it going, by the way? Are you all right? Very nearly done. Oh. It's been a, been a quite a struggle. It's been a year. I normally do books in less. I mean, the actual writing in less than a year. Yeah. And the anniversary for beginnings passed last week and I was struggling, but it's now all actually, it's very nearly there and it's very, very exciting to see it all come. It, I always feel the writing book is a bit like a sculpture that you, yeah. that you start with a block of stone and it's only towards the end that it sort of ends up looking like the sculpture it's meant to, that it, all yeah. the rough edges remain there until you polish them off. And it would be lovely if we can do some of this book as a future episode of Empire, perhaps. Oh, I, think, I think we could manage that. I think I'll have a word with the management. I know well, the presenters. Well, the management uh, can <laughs> be quite tricky. <laughs> I can have a chat. But you know what? Can I just tell you the, my favourite, favourite thing about writing a book? Because I find it very, very hard as well. Very, very hard. It's it is hard. hard. It actually is hard. People it, don't, it really is hard. And there's lots of nice bits. But that, the writing bit is, is bloody hard. It's really bloody hard. Um, but I was moaning and wanging on about how you miserable I was. You would never. <laughs> it's hard to believe. Hard <laughs> to little, believe. Little Miss Sunshine was a little sad one day. And I was on at length just going on and on about my aches, my pains, my RSI, I've my never heard you do any of those. My, my brain not working. <laughs> and this friend of mine, who, who we, you know as well, actually, the, the, the writer, Damien Barr, he said, listen, the thing you've got Lovely to remember. Damien, yeah. Remember this, and I want you to remember this as well, William. Writing a book is like reading a book, except the book is trying to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) It's a brilliant line. (laughs) Isn't it the best line ever? And it's so true. Uh, Anyway, anyway, listen enough. This one very nearly killed me, but... Not quite. Well, I'm glad you're still here, and and I'm glad. I'm. Mean, it's been a really uh, fun end to to the Ottoman series. I, I love these Q and A's. I know you call them flip floppy, but I love them. I love the flip and the flop. But what are we doing next? Can you listen? I know you like blowing the surprise. So now is your time <laughs> Am I to, to say? actually. Legi- well, not that you haven't hundred million times already. But what are we doing next? So we're next up doing the history of slavery. And what I think is wonderful about this sort of format, the, 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 both the podcast format in general, but also the way that we've been doing it with these long in-depth series really going in, is that we can look at everything. We can tell a lot of the, the main story, which is the transatlantic middle passage, the uh, astonishingly brutal way in which industrialized shippers moved enslaved human beings from one part of the world, wiped out the indigenous inhabitants of another part and replaced them with with black plantation slaves all over mm. the Caribbean and all over the New World. But we're also going to be able to do the backstory, which is so interesting too, the story of which early empires had slaves. Were the pyramids built by slaves? What proportion of people in Ancient Italy were slaves. Apparently, it's twenty percent of all people in Italy. So that that would have been a good fact to um, surprise. surprise. <laughs> well, the surprise is blown. <laughs> then the Vikings, and you know the whole way yeah. in which the, the the Vikings enslaved the Slavs, which is where the English word "slaves" comes from. Mm. The whole story that we touched on in the Ottoman series of the enslavement of. Northern Europeans and Christian Europeans from the northern half of the Mediterranean in Barbary, in Algeria, which was another slave city. 
And we've also got some amazing characters as well. I mean, amazing characters. So, so you know what we love doing? We love, love looking through great sweeps of history through a prism of a person, an actual person. So the producer's saying not too much detail on slavery itself. Okay, all right. But <laughs> <laughs> there are some great characters. Despite the producer. Despite the producer. <laughs> sorry, Mr. Lineker. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Malik Umber. Malik Umber. We're going to oh, really fabulous. I mean, you're going to love this series. You're going to love it. And we're not going to say anymore because it is um, it is Callum who is going to get upset. And we don't want to upset Callum because he's, he's a very important man to this series. Look, can I just tell you, though, we're, we're going to have a, a special bonus week next week. Two special one-off episodes coming to you next week. I couldn't be more excited about this. Caroline Elkins on the Mau Mau. I mean, just how good was she? Caroline Elkins is just a genius. And we should come clean about when we did this. We man managed to get Caroline Elkins to the Jaipur Literature Festival in January. And we recorded this, although we weren't doing a series on mm. at the time on Africa or anything related to Mama, but she was so good at the festival that Anita and I cornered her. Uh, we drove jump, her into we jumped hotel on the poor, bewildered woman. <laughs> we just said, you've got to talk to us. This is she too had no good. idea. What we no, were doing, or why we were But wasn't she, wasn't she amazing? So that she was, was a, astonishing. Yeah. And You're going to love it. Yeah, what's it's, extraordinary it's shocking. about yeah. it is it, not only is it extraordinarily shocking, it is incredibly recent. Yes. It's during yes. the lifetimes of all our parents, and it has all sorts of familiar people popping up in it. And it's a proper horror story when you get into the detail. So we're, we're bringing you in one week, the yin and the yang here, because we've also, by huge popular demand, Aram Gua is, is coming back to us. Ram, who did that outstanding episode on Gandhi, also wrote another book, which I, I, I just thought was amazing, which was about allies, allies of um, Indian independence, white allies of Indian independence, those who rebelled against the British Very counterintuitive book, very yeah. interesting, extraordinary book. And we have Ram, who's one of the most sort of forceful and brilliant mm. and incisive speakers on colonialism as a whole, but on, on these very unlikely figures, none of whom uh, will be particularly familiar, I suspect, to most of you. Honestly, he's, he's brilliant about this, and these characters are brilliant, and you, you, you get four amazing characters in this one episode. So Ram Gua and Caroline Elkins, bonus week. We spoil you here at This is Empire. before the slavery series begins. Yeah. This is just a, a little extra. Yeah. I don't know why you're still here. I mean, you've got writing to do. What do you, I mean, why are you, <laughs> got some writing to do? What are you hanging <laughs> about here back. for? Last getting, two chapters. <laughs> back to um, the commands. Just, just very, very briefly, because I love to know, where are you, are you writing in your garden, uh, surrounded by parrots and <laughs> facing your goats? Or are you inside? Are you in the inside No, I'm even in the height of summer, writing. which it is now here in Delhi. And mm. it's 42 degrees here. And it's, and it's, well, I'm speaking to you at two o'clock in the afternoon, my time, uh, which is the, the white midnight when it's just, everything is silent. No one's outside. There isn't anything moving. It's just white heat. Even uh, at that time, I'm outside and I have my You're little open shed. You're still outside? You're outside? Yep. You're joking? I have my little open shed and I sit What there. are you doing that for? You'll dehydrate. You'll turn into a husk, Ever William. Well, I drink lots of water when I'm there. But it just, it's some reason it concentrates my mind. I find I get distracted. I, I you? record this no. podcast in Distracted? A, <laughs> never. <laughs> what? I always record the podcast in the room here in my library, and there's so many interesting things to, to distract you. In that outside, there's nothing, and it's just you've it's got my goats <laughs> and pigeons and parrots. <laughs> None of those can get <laughs> the, the parrots can get in, but the, the, everything yeah. else is locked out. 
It's a little enclosed space and it's very, very nice for writing. So okay, that's where well, I'm going to spend this afternoon. Chop, chop, get writing because we can't wait for this new book. It sounds amazing. Out October. Out October. You've said it now. The publishers have heard it. Everybody's heard it. Uh, listen, this is this is all that we have time for this week. But do join us for the bonus week next week. Two episodes, two extraordinarily brilliant people talking to you next week. So till then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And goodbye from me, William Dalrymple.